please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 16 is where we're going to begin in our study of God's Word this morning. Special greeting to all of the men who are in our church today. It's Father's Day, and on Father's Day, I wanted to share a message from God's Word that would be an encouragement to the men in our church, young men, older men, boys who want to grow up to be men, and begin by thinking a little bit about what does it mean to be a man. That was a question that was asked to those of us who were here at the most recent men's brunch. We were listening to Mike Winger talking about what it means to be a husband And he started off with that question to get us thinking, what does it mean to be a man? And that is an important question if we are men, and it's also an important question for the women to be able to know what to look for in a man. And so as you think about that question, there's certain words that would come to mind that would be characteristic of a man according to God's word. That's where we go. We don't go to our culture, we don't go to our own heart, we don't go to the scientific study of psychology. We go to God's Word to be able to find out what is a man. And so as you read through the Scriptures, as you know the Scriptures, certain characteristics will stand out when it comes to the men who are set forth as examples in Scripture. We just read from Joshua chapter 1 in our Scripture reading, and the two qualities that God exhorted Joshua to show was strength and courage. Those are certainly two of the words that you would think about when you're thinking about what does it mean to be a man. You've got to show the strength. You've got to show courage. Along with this strength and courage comes a sense of responsibility. Responsibility for your family. Responsibility for yourself. Responsibility for your people. Responsibility before God. Self-sacrifice is also another word that comes to mind when you think about the men who are in Scripture. That courage, that strength, that responsibility, it leads to acts of self-sacrifice on behalf of your family, on behalf of your people, and in service to God. Another word that really stands out for me as I think about what it means to be a man is the word steadfast. A man is somebody who's supposed to be steadfast, steady, stable, secure, somebody that you can depend upon, not unstable. And then finally, the word endurance, that goes a lot with steadfastness. So when you think about a man, I thought of someone who has strength, courage, responsibility, self-sacrifice, steadfastness, in order to lead, protect, and provide for his family and his people. That's what it means to be a man, I think, according to my understanding of God and God's word. And we're going to take a look at an example of such a man in scripture today as we look into 1 Kings together. And as you look at 1 Kings, you recognize that this is just one example. That the scripture is full of examples of godly men. Men who show that strength and courage, like Joshua. People who take responsibility and and are willing to sacrifice themselves with courageous actions, like David. People who are steadfast and cannot be detoured from the course of action that God has laid them on, like the Apostle Paul. And of course you have the ultimate example of a man flawless in every way, and the Lord Jesus Christ who displayed all of these characteristics so marvelously as we recently studied through the Gospel of Mark. But today, we're going to take a look at the example of Elijah, Elijah's example in 1 Kings, 
And to set the stage for Elijah's life, we have to look back at the times in which Elijah lived. And we're going to start then in 1 Kings chapter 16 to get a lay of the political landscape during the reign of Ahab in Israel. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 16 verses 29 to 33 to give us our bearings. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So that gives you some idea of the time period, the days, the political situation, the religious situation that Elijah finds himself in as a man of God. As we look into Elijah's life today, we're going to look into chapter 17 with one of the most well-known stories in the Bible of the drought that comes upon Israel. And then the end of that drought after the confrontation between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal, the Canaanite, the Phoenician deity in chapter 18. And then we're going to take a look at how Elijah sets an example for us and how we can live for the Lord our God in the dark days in which we live in the dark political climate, in the dark religious climate, that we want to imitate the courage, the strength, the self-sacrifice, the endurance of Elijah in our time as well. Great that the Bible gives us so many examples to learn from. So as we look into the reign of Ahab, we find out that he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all who were before him, and that his standout sin was that he married Jezebel, the daughter of the Sidonian king. Sidon is one of the chief cities of the Phoenicians. And that this marriage led to the worship of Baal, or Baal, to become the official religion of Israel, the northern kingdom in Samaria. The people of Israel had toyed with and played with and been tempted by the worship of Baal, all throughout their days since they came into the land of Israel. But here we find a crisis for the people of Israel, for the nation, where not only is there Baal worship in their midst, but it is promoted at the highest level of society by the king and the queen themselves who have built and established an altar for Baal in the capital city that Omri had established. Just as David had built Jerusalem and established it as the center of Israel in his time, and Solomon, his son, had built an altar to the Lord in the temple that God had commanded him to build in Jerusalem, so we have this wicked counterpart. Omri establishes Samaria as the capital of his kingdom, and his son builds not a temple for the Lord, but a temple for Baal to be the official religion of the northern kingdom of Israel. 
a critical juncture in Israel's history. Will they forsake the Lord entirely under the leadership of Ahab and Jezebel? Well, that's where we come in to verse 17 and the introduction of Elijah. This is the first we hear of him. This is how scripture brings him onto the stage. Read for me the opening verses of chapter 17. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Galilee said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn aside eastward and hide yourself by the book Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So we don't know much about Elijah's background. We don't know how old he is. We don't know how he got access to talk to the king. But he's a prophet, and God sends him with this message to the king that there will be no rain except by the prophecy of Elijah, the word of the Lord in Elijah. Now, this is important, this is significant, this particular judgment of God on Israel, because Baal was the God of rain and thunder and produce. He was the God that you prayed to if you wanted rain. And now... Israel has set up this altar to him in their capital city. The king and the queen are employing the prophets of Baal and they're getting rid of the prophets of Yahweh and they think this is how we're going to succeed as a nation by worshiping the God who's going to send us rain. And so the Lord sends his prophet and says, oh, you want to worship Baal? Well, here's your judgment. No rain for you because I'm the one who's in charge of the sky, not Baal. So that's a, an amazing confrontation of the prophet before the king. But really, it's a confrontation between the Lord and the false gods, the idols that were being worshipped in the land. Now, any time that you stand up to an authority and you tell them what they don't want to hear, well, then your life is in danger. And Elijah recognizes this, and so the Lord sends him away, gives him a place to hide from the wrath of the king. God knows that when God brings his judgment upon a people for their sins, that those people are going to blame the messenger instead of blaming themselves. We are just fine. There's no problem with us as a nation, the United States says, just like Israel said just then. We're doing everything right. The problem is you people. You people that speak the word of the Lord, you people that fear the Lord, you're the ones that are causing all the trouble here. And if we just get rid of you, everything will be fine. That's the way the wicked mindset works. It never takes responsibility for its own actions. It always blames others. And the most wicked like to blame God and God's people. That's what they do. That's what we see throughout Scripture. So God provides for Elijah. God protects Elijah. God sends him to a place where he can be safe. And we read then through the rest of the chapter that after the brook dries up, that God sends him outside of Israel. He has to leave his own country for safety. That it's not safe for a man of God, a prophet, to live among the people of Israel at this time if he's going to be faithful to the Lord. 
And so he's got to go live among the Gentiles. Amazing. You can read about that in the rest of the chapter, how God provides for the widow of Zarephath, that wherever Elijah goes, he brings a blessing, he gives them life, he gives them food, he even brings their son back from the dead, that God brings blessing through his people wherever he sends them. So you can count on God to protect you, you can count on God to provide for you, and you can count on God to bless those around you when you are a man, and you have courage, and you have strength, and you take responsibility, and you fear the Lord. This is a great example of Elijah trusting in the Lord and God proving himself trustworthy. But we're going to move pretty quickly through chapter 17 and come into chapter 18 where we see Yahweh's confrontation with Baal. And this is a confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And we can read about that here in chapter 18. Starting in verse 1, let's learn about how Elijah comes back into Israel for this showdown. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab. I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Isn't this interesting? It seems like God always has a man somewhere in high places that he can do his work through. And so Obadiah is that man here in the days of Ahab. Why a wicked king like Ahab has Obadiah over his household, well, that's kind of mysterious. But the fact is that Obadiah is a responsible, trustworthy, capable man. And even if Ahab doesn't fear the Lord, he can appreciate somebody who has good qualities that he can trust in. So Obadiah was over the household, and Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So even the king doesn't have water for his animals. You can get a sense for how severe the drought is here. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he's not here, he would take an oath of that kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he can't find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So we get a, a large paragraph here with Obadiah being incredulous that Elijah is actually going to meet and stand before Ahab on this day. 
This shows you the animosity that Ahab had towards Elijah. And it also shows you the trepidation, the fear that was in the heart of Obadiah, the servant of the Lord. That's what his name means. He was in a precarious position. Here's a man who fears the Lord and he's, he's living and serving under the most wicked king that Israel's ever had. You can understand how he feels threatened all the time. His position is very precarious. But God is going to take care of Obadiah. God is going to take care of Elijah. And God is going to be merciful to the people of Israel, including King Ahab. As you read through the life of Elijah, it's just remarkable the mercy and the grace of God even towards the wickedness of a man like Ahab. Now, before we go on, I want to remind you that when Elijah brought the drought by the word of the Lord, this was not a new idea God had come up with at this time or that Elijah had come up with, but that all the way back in the days of Moses, God had promised the people of Israel, if you go and worship other gods, then I'm going to bring judgment upon you. I'm going to discipline you like a father disciplines his children. And one of the ways that God was going to judge and discipline his people of Israel is that he said, back in Deuteronomy, that I will take away your reins. Now is the right time for this to happen as Baal worship becomes the official religion of the northern kingdom. But I want you to look with me all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 11. If you want to have a good understanding of the historical books, then you really need to read and reread the book of Deuteronomy. There are several Old Testament books that I always encourage you to become familiar with. Deuteronomy is the first, then also the book of Psalms, and also the book of Isaiah. You've got to be reading Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah in your personal quiet times, or you will not have a good understanding of Scripture. These are foundational. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 to 18. Here God is giving blessings on obedience and curses on disobedience, and he says in verse 16, Take care, lest your heart be deceived, O Israel, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Now, the people of Israel deserve to perish quickly from the good land that the Lord has given to them, but they're not. They've had three years of warning. They've had three years of discipline, three years to learn that Baal does not send rain, that God, the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who is in charge of the weather. Having taught them this lesson, God is ready now to give them rain. Not that they've deserved it, not that they've repented, not that Ahab has changed his mind or divorced Jezebel or anything like that, but that God is going to just be merciful. And that's what brings Elijah back. This is an act of God's mercy. So let's continue back in the story in verse 17. Back in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore... Send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. 
and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So we see that Jezebel is the power behind the religious movements in Israel, that she's the one who wants to kill the Lord's prophets, that she's the one who wants to support 850 prophets of Baal and his consort Asherah, and that she's really behind this desire to change the religion of Israel completely. And that Ahab, he's just going along with it. And he thinks, okay, fine, whatever. Now, Ahab, he, as I said, is not a man because he doesn't take responsibility, he doesn't fear the Lord, he doesn't lead his own household in spiritual matters, and he blames Elijah for the trouble instead of taking the responsibility that is his. Once again, notice that the wicked will always blame the righteous for the evils that befall the wicked and think that if we could just get rid of those righteous people, then we could enjoy our wickedness without any of the trouble. And that is folly. That's the folly that Satan feeds into their hearts and that we want to free them from. We want them to be able to learn and see that blessing comes from knowing the God who created us and that God has his hands stretched out still to the people of our nation and that anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved with an everlasting salvation and to be able to find real life, peace and joy that is in Christ. And we need to be living that life and letting our light shine so that we can redeem those, we can free those who have been captivated by the lies of Satan to do his will. So that's our mission. Ahab is the example of the fool. Elijah is the example of a man. Now, he sends forth this challenge to gather all Israel to Mount Carmel together with these 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Time for the showdown. You know the story, but it bears repeating. So let's continue in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Israel is divided at this time, indecisive spiritually. They're limping between two opinions. And what a great portrait this is of the United States. Divided, limping between two opinions, trying to be living in this foot and this foot over here, and the people won't commit. They've got leaders who are trying to take them this way, other leaders who are trying to take them this way, and the people are just ambivalent. Whatever. We don't want to offend either side. The people are limping between two different opinions. If the Lord is God... Follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet to the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you, 450 men... You call upon your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So God with one prophet, Baal with 450 prophets, I like those odds. Those are good odds. Because it doesn't matter how many prophets you have, it matters whether or not you have God. That's what matters. 
doesn't matter if there's 450 pastors on one side who are speaking against God's word, and you've got one pastor on the other side who is speaking God's word because the Lord is with him and not with the 450 who are contradicting the Lord. Always keep that in mind. That's what a man knows. That's what Elijah knows. So, the people agree to this contest. God didn't have to do this for the people. God didn't have to give them an opportunity to see who was the true God, but God is being merciful to his people of Israel so that they don't die before their time. There's a time where the nation of Israel is going to experience all the curses of the law. Elijah's day is not that day. It could have been, but God delays it. God brings them back from the brink for a time. And so, the story goes on. So, where would it leave off there in verse 25? Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. You know, I'll be the gentleman here. You guys get to choose the bull. You get to go first. You are many. And call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There is a time for godly sarcasm. That's what we see coming from Elijah here. This is not a bad example. This is a good example. That certain things deserve to be mocked. And this is one of those things. This is one of those times. You see the folly of the prophets of Baal, that they think that in order to get the attention of their wicked and evil God, they have to lacerate themselves. And we've got the emo prophets of the 8th century BC, cutting themselves in order to get attention. If you have to cut yourself to get the attention of your family members, then you've got a bad family. If you have to cut yourself to get the attention of God, well then you've got a bad God. Continue on then in verse 30. They failed, they got to go first, and nothing happened. Because their God doesn't exist. He's a figment of imagination, an invention of the evil one. Verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. I bet the altar of Baal had not been thrown down. It was probably in fine shape. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel, a very basic altar as God had commanded the people of Israel to make. And the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name, O sons of Jacob. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar as great as one would contain two sayas of seed. Two sayas of seed, uh, that is about four gallons of water. Not a lot, not a huge trench. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. 
And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the evening offering, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. That's key. We don't make up the plan. We don't come up with the strategy. We don't figure out how to win a culture war. We just do what God tells us to do, and we trust him. That's what we'll get to when we get to how to apply all this to our dark days. So, I've done all of this at your word. And he cries out, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And you have turned their hearts back. The crisis in Israel, all of their idolatry, all of their backsliding, all of their unfaithfulness to the Lord have led to this nadir in their spiritual life where Jezebel is leading the people into official Baal worship. And now God is going to turn their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, They fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Yeah, now you know. Now you see. God provided a sign for a a wicked and perverse generation that was limping between two opinions and wouldn't choose. Didn't want to offend the king. Didn't want to offend the queen. Didn't want to get on the bad side of any of the Baal worshippers who were in charge. But also, we're not ready to offend the other side and our, our traditions. I mean, we've always worshipped the Lord. And so, we're just going to be in the middle, the non-committed. And God, He shows them the truth. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let no one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. They're not killed on the mountain. God has just sanctified the mountain with this holy sacrifice that he has accepted with fire from heaven. And so they're taken off of the mountaintop down into the valley and they're killed there. This is also according to God's word, according to God's law. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Back to Deuteronomy once again. Whatever Elijah did, he did according to the word of the Lord. The written word that he had and also the word that came to him as the prophet. And in Deuteronomy 13, God had established from the very beginning that the penalty for being a false prophet in the people of Israel would be death. It's a serious crime to speak and lead against God and to turn people aside to falsehood. It says there in Deuteronomy 13, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass... And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Even if he's able to do signs, even if his sign comes true, but he speaks against God's word, you don't listen to him. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, and keep his commandments, and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. 
because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, we're not a theocracy. We're not the people of Israel. We're not supposed to put false teachers to death. And the new covenant, we are a people who live among the nations. We abide by the laws of our nation. And while it's still as much of a sin in God's eyes to be a false prophet, to be a false teacher, we can read about how God is going to judge the false prophet. God is going to judge the false teacher. So we just speak the truth in love. We wait for those who are opposing the truth to repent, hoping that before they die they also can be saved. But for those who persist in counseling rebellion against the Lord, they will die. They will be cast into the lake of fire. There will be no second chance at that point. Their eternity will be set in eternal torment and damnation. God takes this sin seriously. He illustrated it in the laws of Israel. The true judgment is yet to come for all people on the earth. Now, as we come to the end of the drought then, come back to 1 Kings, it was actually a mercy that God sent them this drought for three years so that they could be humbled and they could learn we don't need to sacrifice to Baal in order to get rain for our harvests. And this mercy is that God limited his judgment. He didn't bring all of the curses of the law down upon the people at once, but instead he just gave them a part, a taste of the curse that sin was bringing down upon them in order to teach them, in order to turn them back. This is God's wisdom, knowing how much to chasten, how much to discipline, according to his will, according to his pleasure, according to his timetable. We don't understand all of that. We don't know when God is going to bring final judgment. We don't know when God is bringing just a little bit of the judgment that is deserved. But God has his purposes. He has his ways among all peoples and all times and places. So it's time for God to be merciful and it's time for God to send rain. Now, one thing I want to mention before we move on is that the law also decreed death for anyone who worshipped other gods. And so if God was going to bring the law down upon the people of Israel, it wouldn't just be the 450 prophets of Baal who were dying here. It would have been everyone among the people of Israel who had worshipped Baal. And that was most everybody. You would have gotten down to about 7,000 people left in Israel if God had brought the full penalty down upon them that they deserved. There was only 7,000 people who had not bowed the knee to Baal, as God will make clear to Elijah in the coming chapters. But God spares the people, and he only kills the prophets. He doesn't even kill Jezebel. He doesn't even kill Ahab. He spares them. He just has the prophets killed. And even that is too much for modern people to take. How could God kill those false prophets? They know nothing about God. They know nothing about the righteousness of God. They know nothing about the penalty of sin. The penalty for sin is death. That's why there's a cross at the front of this church. So, we come back to the text, and we have more mercy in verse 41. So they bring down the false prophets, they slaughter them, and Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, even though you deserve to die, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. 
So Ahab went to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, from Mount Carmel to Jezreel is about 20 miles. He's running a marathon here, and he's outrunning a chariot. That's pretty remarkable. I can see why God put that miracle here. There's one more miracle capping off this series of miracles here in an amazing chapter. God has been shown to be real. Baal has been shown to be false. And so now God is able to send rain among his people without Baal taking the credit. That's why he brings the rain now, after Baal has been shown to be a nothing God. So, we've seen the character of God. We've seen the righteousness of God. We've been reminded about what a man of God looks like when he's doing exactly what the Lord God tells him to do, with courage, with confidence, with self-sacrifice. That's what we want to be as men. So let's talk a little bit about what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be a man in the time and the place that we live now. And I'm going to start off by talking about reasons why we as men might have reason to be afraid. This is a difficult time. This is a crisis moment also for us as a people. We have a morally decadent culture. Let me remind you of some of the moral decadence that is around us. No-fault divorce has destroyed the nuclear family. Sexual immorality is praised and encouraged even among prepubescent children. Witchcraft, drug use, and sorcery are mainstreamed. Good is being called evil. Evil is being called good. Racial discrimination has become official policy at Ivy League schools and top businesses. Insane anarchists who cry out to defund the police have a strong platform. Women shout their abortions, no longer trying to keep them legal, safe, and rare, but seem to have a bloodthirst. Patriotism is vilified. The evils of socialism and history are whitewashed as we slide towards the gulags once again. Free speech is shut down. Property rights are violated. Government and media collude to spread lies and silence anyone who questions the propaganda. Political corruption is hardly even hidden, and they'll lie to your face about what is openly obvious. That's the day in which we live. The authoritarian rise in the Western world makes us wonder, is there going to be freedom left anywhere in the world in the coming generations? There's medical tyranny, there's monetary tyranny. Big tech leaves us with no privacy. Spyware is on every phone and computer with the government working together with these companies in order to know everything that everyone is doing everywhere. The social credit system is there to try to get everyone to conform to an ungodly morality. 
There's environmentalist land grabs by the federal government who wants to own 30% of the land in America by 2030. So devaluation of our currency and a control of alternate currencies. That this authoritarianism is looming large. And we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if America's going to experience another civil war. We don't know if China's going to become the dominant world power with an evil empire. We worry about our children. We worry about our grandchildren. And it's in days like this that we're reminded that things are looking very good because things are looking very bad. When the night is dark, the light shines brightly. When everyone around is losing hope and is trembling in fear at the things that are coming upon us, the man of God has no fear. These things do not make us tremble. These things do not make us worried. These things do not make us anxious. But we know that though we don't know the future, our Father does. And we talk to Him every day. He doesn't tell us everything that He's planning, but we know He's planning, and we know He's more powerful, and we know He's more wise, and that He can delve several fathoms below Satan's depths and can outwit evil. Now, if it wasn't bad enough to see the moral decadence of the people and the authoritarianism of our leaders, on top of all this, we could be disheartened by the weakness of the progressive church. There's one place you hope to be able to go and find strength and courage and confidence and faith and hope and love, and, and you don't find it. you got 450 false churches, it seems like, for every one good church where the Word of God is believed and preached. Those whom we thought were our allies are faithless. They're regressing into progressivism. So many false Christians deconstructing their faith. Well, those who have taught the Bible have been decrying the compromise within the church for 70 years. So don't be surprised at the state of the church in 2023. We've been sowing these seeds a long time, despite all the warnings of God's Word and faithful servants of the Word. And so if you see churches being weak, don't be surprised. And don't be afraid. When you see seminaries going bad and you see denominations giving way, being taken over, don't fear. Our confidence was never in our denominations. Our confidence was never in our seminaries. When they become too big, God doesn't even want them anymore because then we put our confidence and our trust in them. When they've got too much money, when they've got too much power, when they've got too much political clout, God gives them up because he doesn't demonstrate his power through things like that. He does it through nobodies like us. That's who God wants to use. So don't worry about the odds. Don't worry about the numbers. You stand with the Lord and you'll stand. And God will take care of you. God will provide for you. God will protect you until the day that he has appointed you to finish your race. Just like Paul just like Elijah, just like Jesus. Is God real? Do you stand with him? Let's pray. Lord, show the world what it means to be a man with the men who are here. We confess to you, God, that sometimes we are losing courage. Sometimes we look about and we start to sink into the waters 
that seemed to be growing more and more tempestuous all the time around us. And we ask you, Lord God, to reach out, grab our hand, remind us that you are with us, and that nothing can hurt us and nothing can harm us so long as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, leading our families, leading our church, setting an example of hope to people around us who are losing hope. May they see a light that is shining from the godly men, the godly husbands, the godly fathers who have the character traits that are healthy in your sight. Increase those within us by your power and by your grace for we confess to you, Father, that apart from you, we can do nothing. But with you, we can do all things. We give you thanks through Jesus Christ. Amen.